Did Israel light a spark in Jerusalem's Sheikh Jarrah that Palestinians have transformed into a turning point in their struggle for self-determination? Has the way this conflict is understood internationally really shifted? And if so, what are the political implications? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute interview program on current events, policy questions, and new ideas. I'm Mu'ain Rabbani, and for this episode, we're delighted to be speaking with the writer and analyst, Nathan Thrall, who joins us from Jerusalem. Nathan Thrall's work has focused on Israel and Palestine, and he is described as one of the most important writers in the field by the New York Times. He is a contributor to the New York Times Magazine, the London Review of Books, and the New York Review of Books. His widely praised 2018 book, the only language they understand, forcing compromise in Israel and Palestine, was translated into a number of languages. He is the former director of the Arab-Israeli Project at the International Crisis Group, where he spent a decade covering Israel, the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and Israel's relations with its neighbors. Thrall's most recent contributions are The Separate Regime's Delusion and A Day in the Life of Abed Sanama. Links to both of these important articles are in the advertisement for this session. Nathan, it's a real pleasure to have you on the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Nathan, let's start with recent developments in Israel and the occupied territories. A good proportion of the available explanations focus on either Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's efforts to retain power in an effort to avoid trial on corruption charges, um, or otherwise focus on Hamas and its frustration at the cancellation of Palestinian Authority elections by President Mahmoud Abbas. Do you agree with these interpretations, or are these factors the shiny objects diverting our view from more deep-rooted factors that we should be focusing on? Um, thanks for that question, Moin. It's it's uh, very much the latter. Um, uh, I'm, you know, before I uh, talk about the specific factors involved, I, I just want to make a broader point, which is obviously none of us have a predictive model. There's nobody out there who can predict when the next uprising or major con conflagration is going to take place. Um, so when something happens, we look back and we try and analyze whether it's the uh, truck accident that uh, set off the, the first intifada or uh, Sharon's visit to the um, Haram al-Sharif that set off the second intifada. Um, everybody goes and looks at these proximate causes and largely ignores the real structural and deeper causes. And, um, and, and the fact is that you know, the power discrepancy is so great that Palestinians just don't have uh, the ability or the uh, uh, energy to um, to sustain uprisings uh, for great lengths of time and with uh, regularity. And so, um, if somebody were truly able to predict to explain these things after the fact, then they should also be able to predict the next one. And, and no one can do that. No one can say when that's going to happen. Um, 
in terms of the the two main explanations that you gave you know the, i'm very skeptical of this notion that's in the uh israeli press of uh of netanyahu having stirred up things in order to advance his own uh narrow political interest, namely uh, thwarting the possibility of an alternative government and and not go too much into the weeds on this but if you just look at the timeline it doesn't make any sense so what were the two you know, main events that brought about protests uh, over the last month? The first one was um, the uh, Israeli police closing off um, the plaza and the steps uh, around Damascus Gate. Uh, that took place at the beginning of Ramadan. At that point, Netanyahu had the mandate to form a government. And not only that, he was attempting at that moment uh, to court uh, Mansour Abbas and uh, and uh, and he had oh, one zero of the Arab parties uh, in the Israeli Parliament. That's right. Sorry mm -hmm. for not explaining that. Um, and he had uh, the opposite interest. He he did not have an interest. He already has a, a very skeptical constituency uh, uh, when it comes to uh, the possibility of cooperation with Palestinian citizens of Israel and. Um, having a, uh, a conflagration in Jerusalem at that moment was, was very much against his interest in, in forming a uh, government. The second major uh, event uh, that, that led to uh, massive protests that we saw prior to the start of the Gaza War um, were the um, uh, uh, forced uh, evictions, the court cases over the forced displacement of Palestinians in uh, Sheikh Jarrah, um, and again, here, this is a years long process. Those court cases, the dates of them were determined before uh, any kind of coalition uh, calculations could have played a role. The government doesn't determine the, the date of the court case in any event. Um, and uh, furthermore, uh, what we saw is that the government actually took uh, belated action to try and uh, quell what it saw as a as a growing uprising. So, with the um, uh, decision to close the, the steps and the plaza around Damascus Gate, the the government capitulated. They uh, eventually the protest grew so large, uh, and were worried about them uh, growing even larger. And and they then decided to open up uh, the plaza and reverse their decision, which was an embarrassing move for them. Um, and they did that again uh, while uh, Netanyahu still had uh, the mandate uh, to form a government. And, and similarly with, with, uh, with the uh, Sheikh Jarrah case, the Supreme Court was due to have a hearing on this case on May 10th, which is Jerusalem Day, the, the ultra-nationalist uh, uh, celebration of Israel's conquest of uh, of Jerusalem in 1967. This is when you have a uh, a march of made up of all kinds of Israelis, but prominently uh, ultranationalist, religious Zionist Israelis who march through uh, Damascus Gate and are often uh, uh, chanting "Muhammad is a pig," "Death to Arabs," Palestinian shop owners uh, close their shops. Uh, Palestinian residents of the old city where they're marching through hide in their homes. It's a very, very tense uh, event that occurs year after year. 
And it happened that the court scheduled the, the Sheikh Jarrah case, one of the, the, the hearings uh, that day, and the attorney general uh, made it so that he recommended that the, uh, that the court postpone that hearing on that day, because again, the government didn't want a major explosion. It was already dealing with with uh, a huge rise in in protests. So, um, and and at that point, by the way, Netanyahu did have supposedly the incentive um, because he no longer had the mandate on May tenth, and uh, and hoped to uh, thwart the possibility that Yair Lapid would would form a um, a government. So. The, the, on the micro level, even on the micro levels, the, the, the explanation of Netanyahu deliberately starting all of this uh, in order to uh, thwart the formation of an alternative government, I think uh, doesn't stand up to scrutiny and, and, and there's very little evidence to support it. I think it stems, by the way, from a larger uh, bias in the uh, press and in the analytic community which is the bias of liberal Zionism. And, uh, and that uh, worldview basically attempts to assert that the real problem, the real conflict in Israel-Palestine is uh, a result of the, the Trump and Netanyahu alliance. Uh, it's, if, it only, if it weren't for, for Bibi, if it weren't for Trump, um, then you know we could have peace. And None of this a, would be happening. Yes, and and it's an ahistoric uh, worldview. It's a, it, it's a uh, absolution for the Israeli left of their own culpability in the settlement project, in in the Judaization of Jerusalem, in all of the policies that are in place uh, that are the deep causes of the unrest that we see. Um, and so it, it's, it's part of the system of, of denial and to think of yourself as a good liberal when you're part of a, uh, a regime that is uh, oppressing people based on their, their ethnicity is to blame it all on the right. There are extremists on both sides. We just need the good guys uh, to, to come in power, the PA and the, and the uh, liberal Zionist left, and, uh, and all will be solved. Um, so I, I see that this analysis uh, stems actually, it, it, the, the false analysis itself has its own deeper, uh, deeper cause. Um, and, and sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to ask if, 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 you're, if you have similar reservations about the alternate theory, which is that Hamas was outraged that um, uh, Abbas had canceled Palestinian Authority legislative elections, and then um, uh, escalated matters deliberately in order to be able to demonstrate uh, their popularity on uh, among Palestinian public opinion. That seems to be the kind of um, alternate explanation that you often see, along with the Netanyahu one we've just discussed. I mean, I think that um, the main thing to be said about that is that there was a nascent uprising in place on May 10th when, uh, and well before May 10th, when uh, Hamas made its ultimatum to Israel. And, and uh, I can tell you, because I live right next to Damascus Gate, I had gone out to many of these uh, protests. I had, I'd seen them, I was uh, fired at with a, a stun grenade. 
and uh, and and I saw that there there was uh, enormous uh, support for Hamas in Jerusalem. There were huge uh, uh, crowds uh, chanting for Hamas, chanting for Muhammad Dave, chanting against Abbas, um, and uh, and and all of that existed prior to May tenth. Um, so they didn't need this either. Well, I mean, you could argue certainly that they that factored into their own calculation. I mean, they saw a ripe opportunity. They saw Palestinians were rising up. They saw a mass protest movement. They saw 48 Palestinians uh, were involved. They saw how unpopular Abbas is. Um, uh, so, so certainly that that played into their own calculation of whether the risk was was worth it or not. But um, but but the phenomenon of of the uh, widespread uh, protest that we saw uh, preceded the the Hamas decision to to present Israel with an ultimatum. And 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 so you're saying that um, while these things can't be predicted and we can't really specify it was this and it was not that, um, I, if I understand you correctly, you're basically saying um, if we really want to understand what happened, we need to look at the more deep-rooted factors that bought the situation about in, in, which, in which these events took place. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and you know, the, those, those deep factors, um, they can be exacerbated. It's certainly the case. I don't want to deny that, you know, some of these local conditions helped to bring about uh, what happened now. Uh, it's certainly the case that uh, the excessive force used by the police against the, the Damascus Gate uh, protesters uh, helped to fuel uh, the protests themselves. The uh, huge amount of, of casualties you had in the days preceding the, the Gaza escalation on the Haram al-Sharif um, uh, that also uh, played a role. So, so these uh, micro factors they they do play a role, but the the deeper causes are are the important ones, and and the deeper causes are of course just the the ever present um, uh, oppression of Palestinians in Jerusalem uh, and uh, and and throughout the territory under Israel's control, uh, but also other other that are maybe more uh, recent, uh, like the weakness of, of the PA, um, the uh, uh, weakness of uh, Abbas, the perception that there's no uh, two states or any kind of solution on the uh, horizon, the perception that the uh, Palestinians have been abandoned uh, by the international community and, and, and by the Arabs most recently in the Abraham Accords, um, and, and, you know, I, I mean, I could list other factors, but I think that the deep causes are, are really the, the heart of this uprising. And, and we saw, uh, we saw that in the mouths of, of the protesters themselves. Okay. And maybe then turning to our next subject, which is, um, the past few weeks, people have been increasingly speaking about a turning point. Um, that these that these events collectively represent the turning point. And uh, my question to you is, what was different this time, whether in Israel, whether in Palestine, whether in the region or internationally, to justify such interpretations and whether or not you agree with them? 
So I, I do have to say that, uh, that it really did feel like uh, this um, this war for sure. And just this last um, month and a half uh, felt quite different than uh, Jerusalem has felt to me uh, in, in over 10 years here. And, and then that Israel, then, then Israel of Palestine has felt to me. Um, and so, you know, I want to give a very big caveat before I elaborate on the ways in which I feel it's a turning point, because I think that, um, you know, the, the, if you ask me to predict, uh, the future, I believe that we are, you know, decades away from real uh, substantive change here. I believe that, you know, the most likely scenario is that the this, uh, uprising that we've seen is going to be quashed, that in a few months we're going to be back to a siege on Gaza, Palestine out of the international headlines, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel um uh back to the the uh you know relative uh, quiescence that we saw uh, prior uh, to the last few weeks and and uh and security cooperation continuing in the, in the west bank with abbas uh, still still in place you know that is the, the most likely scenario there are other other possibilities and so when we talk about a turning point i don't want to suggest that um you know th th that the whole world is about to change uh, tomorrow, and and I think the way we've seen change in Israel-Palestine has been incremental, and it happens in bursts, and and this felt like an important uh, burst, and and um, you know obviously the the the, the, the turning point on the U.S. with um, the discourse in Congress with uh, members of Congress. And, and you know, again, don't want to overstate it. You know, Betty McCollum has a bill that she's put forward several times now uh, calling for, it's not even calling to, to cut aid to Israel or even condition aid. It's merely looking to examine uh, the U.S. role in the policy of Palestinian, uh, Israeli detention of Palestinian minors. You know, that uh, has zero chance of passing. Um, and so, like, <laughs> I, I want to ground us in the big picture, which is that bill, which is so um, meek, uh, still has zero chance of passing in this Congress and, and only has, you know, a, a, a small number of, of, uh, of signatories to it. Um, that said, the, the voices that we have heard, first of all, are saying things that we've never heard from members of Congress. And, and second, uh, these are, are very uh, important figures. I mean, uh, Alexandria, uh, sorry, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, is one of the most popular politicians in, in America. And, um, and she is calling uh, Israel an apartheid state. I think that's a very, very significant thing. Um, and, and I think that there have been, you know, uh, other turning points uh, here too. For Hamas, I'm sure this felt like a, a turning point in terms of its own uh, popularity and in terms of Abbas's uh, absolute, you know, nadir 
that, that he's reached. I mean, obviously that's not new. He's been unpopular for a long time, but it really does feel, it's striking how unpopular uh, the, the Ramallah leadership is right now. Um, and, and, uh, and the war, of course, only, only strengthened um, that trend. And, and I think that, you know, the most significant thing of all, but for, for me and for almost everyone I've talked to around me, was what happened inside uh, 48, what happened inside pre-67 uh, Israel. Um, Do you want to elaborate you know, on that a bit? Because that, that yes. seems to be what many people um, identify as, as, as the most significant change these past few weeks. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, um, just the very the the very nature of what was happening, uh, where you had um, the uh, border police, uh, the defense minister calling up the reserves of the border police, where they where they do most of their work suppressing uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, to call up a large number of reserves to come into cities inside. Uh, uh, Green Line Israel, to call a curfew, to have uh, uh, checkpoints inside uh, uh, Green Line Israel, to have even basically militia checkpoints. I mean, you had some of these mobs create their own impromptu tech checkpoints where they were checking cars for the ethnicity of the driver. Um, you know, all of that gave people a glimpse of a very dark uh, future. I mean, I don't think anybody imagined, could imagine, you know, Green Line Israel into a Somali-like uh, situation. And now it's imaginable. I don't know. I don't think it's it's likely, but uh, it, it's imaginable. And that was very scary uh, for everyone. Of course, it was extremely scary for Palestinian uh, citizens who who were subjected. Uh, to, uh, to violence, um, and uh, and and you know, there was a wonderful op-ed in the Washington Post uh, just, uh, I believe it was yesterday, describing what it was like to be in Haifa and hide in your house as you had these mobs, the Jewish mobs, roaming through the streets and and marking doors of houses uh, for for who is an who is an Arab inside. Um, so. Um, so it was significant just in the sense of a, a scary uh, possibility. It was significant in the sense that, um, you know, most of the world subscribes to what I call the separate regimes delusion. Uh, this belief that there is this hard separation between good green line Israel and the bad temporary occupation. Um, and that these two things are totally separate from one another, and the occupation is somewhere over there, outside the state of Israel, even though uh, one in ten Israeli Jews uh, live in that area, and even though these places have been fully incorporated, and they have uh, fire stations and courthouses and the um, you know public uh, 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 health facilities and. Um, city halls and all the rest, um, it's still, there is this kind of um, cognitive dissonance where you understand that these places are essentially Israel on the other side of the green line, and yet um, many Israelis and many in the international community think of it as somehow outside of Israel. 
And, and that really disappeared uh, in the last uh, few weeks because you saw the same conditions, the same border police, the same checkpoints, the same uh, settlers uh, uh, terrorizing Palestinians inside the Green Line. And, and even, you know, the use of the word settler, I mean, you started to hear uh, much more, it happened before too, but you started to hear much more uh, people describing uh, settlers inside Green Line Israel, because it, in fact, many of the people who are settling in these so-called mixed cities who are are, are uh, f- former residents of the West Bank, Israeli Jewish residents of the West Bank, who move to Palestinian areas uh, inside Green Line Israel in order to Judaize them. Um, so so th- this is the, the same process happening inside the Green Line and in the West Bank. And, um, and I think it was a major blow to those who believe in separate regime and the whole paradigm uh, that goes along with it of resolving the conflict through a um, partition into two states with Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, I think all of that was enormously challenged by the last uh, few weeks, and and a big part uh, a big part of that challenge was the positive side. Uh, I've been describing some of the negative side, but the positive side of what we saw, uh, which was uh, Palestinian unity, and it was uh, striking just how powerful it was to see Palestinians protesting across historic Palestine, and even not just historic Palestine, but coming to the border from from Jordan and from from Lebanon. Uh, It it was, uh, first of all, it was uh, moving. There was something incredibly uh, powerful about seeing uh, Palestinians coming from Jordan to the border as their people were uh, being besieged and bombed and uh, dying. And and this kind of effort at uh, what felt like rescue was was enormously inspiring. You know, for the first time you're seeing Palestinians in the the right direction (laughs) across Mm -hmm. that border, or at least attempting to. Um, so, So, um, so, so I think that the, just the sight of Palestinian unity was a thing that was frightening uh, to Israelis. I want to tell you a, a small little anecdote. Visible. Please. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, I, it was so I, visible. I didn't hear what you just said. Say it again. Sorry. When you mentioned um, Palestinian unity making such an impact, I said perhaps because it was so visible on on the ground as as you've just uh, described but um yes i interrupted you you were giving us an anecdote oh yeah so so i um a few years ago i was interviewing uh a recently retired uh israeli general and i was talking to him about the policy of separation between gaza and the west bank that israel uh very strictly enforces um and uh, this is part of the policy of the, the siege of Gaza and part of the Israel's policy, which is to um, ensure that the standard of living in Gaza never come anywhere close to that of the, of the West Bank, that Palestinians understand that there's a cost 
to uh, uh, being under uh, Hamas rule and uh, and that they will be punished for uh, elevating uh, Hamas in any way. And um, and I was talking to him about about the policy and and uh, the kind of deeper uh, rationale for it. And he surprised me because he said, you know, it's not just in a demographic issue that we don't want some large number of the 2 million people in Gaza to move to the West, which we're preventing. We're not allowing Gazans to relocate to the to West Bank and live there because we want to, uh, you know, take over what's left of the West Bank. And so we want to minimize the Palestinian population there. Um, sure, that's part of it, but that's not the, the, the main thing. Um, you know, the main thing is the threat of, uh, of Palestinian unity. And of course, I'd heard, you know, quotes, so you see it in the press all the time where, where you know, Netanyahu in a Likud meeting talks about uh, how beneficial it is to Israel to have the Palestinians divided and how they could never, um, uh, you know, achieve statehood as long as they're divided. And in Israel to go for two states is, is much less if, if Palestinians divided. Um, that we're all familiar with, but what the, what surprised me that the that the general said that I had never uh, heard before is you know the real threat uh, is uh, in Palestinian unity is not Fatah Hamas unity, it's that Fatah and Hamas or Gaza and the West Bank unite, and then Palestinians inside the Green Line unite with them. That's an existential threat to us, and. It was at that moment, that was such a distant possibility, such a distant threat, uh, that it was just very, it was novel to me to have an Israeli say that out loud. And it, and I constantly went back to that quote in my mind over the last couple of years, because um, I think it's something that's greatly underutilized, the power uh, of that unity. Um, By the Palestinians. By the Palestinians, yes, and 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 we got a taste of that power in the last uh, few weeks, and there are enormous obstacles to it being uh, materialized, um, uh, realized. Uh, but it became imaginable um, in a way that I think is deeply uh, uh, frightening to Israel. Um, Nathan, I just well before asking. My next question, um, given your extensive comments on, on separate regimes, I'd just like to refer viewers um, to your article a few months back in uh, the London Review of Books, which, which is in fact entitled The Separate Regimes Delusion. And I would very much encourage people um, to look it up on the website of the London Review of Books. I, I just, um, before turning back to, um, developments on the ground, I just briefly um, like to ask your comments on the U.S. role, which is that, as you know, um, the Biden administration early on made very clear it had other priorities and didn't want to get involved. Um, and now, you know, uh, Secretary of State Blinken is in uh, Jerusalem and uh, Ramallah, um, seems to be touting an agenda of humanitarian assistance and strengthening um, the Palestinian Authority 
in order to uh, seek to uh, weaken uh, Hamas. Um, and, and, and perhaps also getting back to your response to my previous question, you now have both Biden and Blinken, at least rhetorically, also talking about equality for citizens within the green line, which I think is um, quite unprecedented. But perhaps briefly, I'd like to get your thoughts on where you see um, uh, the U.S. role in this in this question heading. Yeah. Um, so so I think that um, we should expect uh, nothing uh, good from the Biden administration. Um, the the positive trends that I was describing in Congress, you know, th that's a very long term process, and I think that it will be very important, uh, and it's growing, uh, but but it's a long term thing. It's not going to uh, result in in Biden uh, surprising us uh, in this term, and even if he has a second term, um, uh, that's what I mean by by long term. Um, I, you know, I, I have noticed the use of the word equality, and I welcome it. Um, uh, I don't make too much out of it. Uh, I don't think that that it uh, signifies a, a whole lot. Um, I, I think that both Blinken and Biden are, you know, very traditional in their views as basically, you know, just pro-Israel. A two-state solution, in quotes, um, is something else we could talk about. But for me, you know, the Trump plan is the real two-state solution, um, and uh, and so I think people make too much of a of a, div a thing about how horrible the Trump plan is vis-a-vis -vis the real two-state solution. But actually, the Trump plan is the real two-state solution, and there's not so much of a gap between it and what uh, had been uh, proposed and negotiated before. Um, but you know. That's what they want, and and they're not going to even work hard to get it because uh, they have a realistic uh, appraisal of of uh, the situation and 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 just how unlikely uh, it is for them to make any progress on that front. And so, you know, we can't expect uh, the Biden administration to reduce aid, to condition aid, to leverage. Uh, its its um, its power and its influence uh, on Israel. So so given that, what what we really have to hope for is that they will continue to play as little a role as possible. Um, and and I've mainly been encouraged by the fact that they have deprioritized uh, the conflict um, and and played a minimal role. That's really the best uh, that that we can. Um, that we can hope for. I, I want to say something else just while we're talking about this, uh, the language of equality, you know, there, it does, it does feel like many people are now, because there is no hope in any kind of solution, whether two states or something else, people are challenging the old paradigm, they're challenging Oslo, they're challenging the old talking points, they're challenging two states. Um, and by the way, this is another aspect of the power of Palestinian unity, because part of the way in which the international community thinks of the two-state solution as fair is by conceiving of the conflict as primarily over the West Bank and Gaza. 
as a conflict not between the Palestinian people and Israeli Jews, which is what the conflict really is, but as a conflict between the occupied subjects in the West Bank and Gaza and the state of Israel. Uh, and those are two very different things, and they, and they call for very different remedies. And if it's a situation of the state of Israel oppressing the Palestinian people writ large, and it's a conflict with the Palestinian people writ large, then what, what does the two-state solution look like in that light? It looks like a proposal to take one of the parties, the dominating group, and say, you get to stay united inside your own state, and take the other party, the dominated group, and say, we're going to split you up. You're going to be, you, the united Palestinian people, are going to be divided into, uh, you know, a subjugated minority status inside the state of Israel and into what we will call a state and probably won't really be a state uh, in, in, uh, in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, so... I was saying that in Washington, there is a lot of challenge or there's growing challenge to the old uh, model. And one, one thing that's been cited a lot lately is this Carnegie endowment uh, paper that's uh, calling for the U.S. to adopt a new approach with a rights-based uh, discourse. And, and I welcome the paper and I think it's a positive uh, development. But here too, you know, I think that the, the language is very vague and, and it falls far short of, of what we should be aspiring for. And it's merely hinting and alluding to some other possibility, but when they don't really spell out what they mean by a rights-based approach. And, and it's rather ironic that um, when you call for a rights-based approach in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the singular right, the, the central right, the, whenever you use the word right in the context of this conflict, what right are we talking about? The right of return, as is the right of all refugees who are expelled in wars. Uh, and uh, that's entirely absent from the so-called rights-based approach of the Carnegie paper. Um, so it's so vague, it's, it's really empty. And, and so is the, the equal, uh, the equality language from the Biden administration. Again, I welcome both de developments, realize change has to happen incrementally, it has to happen slowly, it's in the right direction, uh, but, it, but it's, it's, it's far from enough. And even that Carnegie paper, you know, it mentioned the two states as we're not ruling out two states, and it doesn't anywhere say that we entertain uh, mm -hmm spell out what they entertain as an alternative. Um, so, you know, the, the, you, you, part of your question was about, about Blinken's visit to, to Abbas today. Um, and, uh, you know, it was obvious to me that during the Gaza war, after it was over, the U.S. would, as a matter of instinct, go and try and help prop up Abbas. Um, and, I don't know how much they'll do for him, but even just the very act of going and visiting him is breathing new life into this into this corpse of of, of the PA. Uh, and he, you know, if we want to think about his own incentives, I mean, he he is was really in a corner, totally at a nadir in his uh, influence. He's watching the Gaza War as a, as a um, bystander. He's watching the protests in Jerusalem as a bystander. He's being denounced by these protesters in Jerusalem in huge numbers on the Haram al-Sharif. 
thousands chanting against him. Last Friday, you know, the PA-affiliated Mufti chanted out, 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 out. So, um, you know, this might be a moment where he would be forced to make some kind of compromise. And the, the U.S. coming in and patting him on the back and hugging him and telling him we're going to, you know, we're going to bring things back to what they used to be, uh, it, it, it only it only prolongs uh, it only prolongs something that that needs to to come to an end already. Thanks, Nathan. Um, perhaps to conclude our discussion, I, I think a lot of a lot of um, what we've been talking about so far has has focused very much on on what you term uh, the separate regimes uh, delusion and how that's a delusion not only in theory as as you've published in articles before the recent events but now how also on the ground it's been um uh, directly um contradicted so what i'd like to do ask you to do in conclusion is perhaps looking forward um as you reflect on 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 recent developments how do you see them playing out. Are there perhaps any specific ideas or proposals that have come into your head watching developments in recent weeks that that you think could have um, a constructive impact on on what may be happening in the coming weeks and months? Yes. Um, so I think uh, I've thought two two main things over, over the, the recent weeks. Um, one is something that's familiar and I had thought before these recent events is that, you know, the largest obstacle to having a true paradigm shift in the international community, we're starting to see it, uh, but the real obstacle, the biggest obstacle to it today is the PLO, uh, is the PA. And Everyone in DC, everyone in Europe, uh, Blinken and Biden and all of them, you can come to them and say that this is a conflict uh, in, in which the Palestinian people are one, in which the Palestinian people are being dominated through various means in these various areas. You can argue uh, till you're blue in the face that their old paradigm is dead. But as long as they can point to the PA and the PLO and say uh, the uh, only legitimate representatives, the leadership of the Palestinian national movement, this is they're still with my paradigm. They still say what I say. Um, and, and what that also means is that there could be a rapid change if pressure could be brought to bear on that leadership or if that leadership were to change um, uh, because, um, uh, you know, that, that's really the kind of the last, uh, the last uh, obstacle to, to what we're already seeing uh, happening dis despite that obstacle. And I, I recall being at a, at a meeting of PLO in Ramallah uh, a couple of years ago and the main EU representative got up and he and he said uh, to several leaders of of the uh, uh, um, of Fatah who were there, um, he said, you know, uh, don't keep blaming us 
in, as they were doing in their remarks that day. Don't keep blaming us, Europe, or the international community for the positions that you are taking, that you have to be saying we support uh, you know, a Palestinian state on 67 borders and so on and so forth, um, because uh, we'll lose Europe uh, if, if we don't, or we'll lose the international community if we don't. If you tomorrow say we've changed our goals and we, and we want uh, to have full rights and we want to re-examine the entire regime that is uh, in power uh, from the river to the sea, because there is just one regime in power, um, you know, we'll be with you. Because at the end of the day, we are in favor of basic things like equality. Now, you can rightly be skeptical that they will be with you, um, but uh, it really is the case that um, that would be an enormous accelerant if PA were to, the PA were to change its tune. The, the more important thing uh, that I thought is really when you got this glimpse of Palestinian unity over the over the past uh, few weeks, uh, it made me start to imagine new possibilities. You know, what if at some point in the future the uh, you know Palestinian people were to form a body that included either the members of Knesset or the high follow-up committee, the representatives of pre-67 Israel, Palestinian citizens inside Israel. And it included Palestinians from the diaspora and representatives from Gaza and representatives from Jerusalem and representatives from the West Bank. And this body were to say to Israel, we are the address for any matter of Palestinian concern. You want to talk to us about security cooperation in the West Bank. You want to talk to us about uh, protests in Jerusalem. You want to talk about to us about uh, violence in uh, cities uh, inside pre-67 Israel. You want to talk to us about uh, soldiers or the bodies of soldiers that are held in Gaza. All of these things come to this address and we will make trade-offs. We will decide whether we we want to negotiate security co continued security cooperation against you know relaxation of the siege in Gaza or or against recognition of unrecognized villages either in Area C or in uh, the Negev, um, and uh, I think that it would be enormously empowering for Palestinians if they uh, were able to do that. Uh, and, and secondly, um, I think it would have a huge impact on the international perception of what this conflict is, because suddenly it would be undeniable to the whole world that this is a conflict between uh, Israel, between Israeli Jews, really, and the Palestinian people. And the Palestinian people are being dominated in various ways. And that is the issue that we need to address and we need to correct. And it won't be corrected with our old models. Nathan, thank you very much uh, for this uh, fascinating discussion and your insights into 
the context and implications of, of what we've seen in recent weeks. Um, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us on this latest episode of Connections. Thank you for having me, Moyen.